You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. In 1973, the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade overturned the laws of 46 states, created the idea that the U.S. Constitution contains the right to an abortion, and started a low-burning cultural conflict that has persisted from then until now. 63 million abortions later, on June 24, 2022, the case Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health overturned the laws of no states, uh, said that Roe was wrong to find such a right in the Constitution. Whether this will resolve the ongoing cultural conflict or exacerbate it remains to be seen. Joining us today to help us think about Dobbs and the state of the discussion over abortion in America is Ryan Anderson, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center and co-author of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Uh, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show. I, I appreciate you doing this. I know you're a busy guy. Yeah, sure, sure thing. Happy to be doing it. Uh, so can you uh, give us just a, a brief overview? Uh, what what was the landscape of the ad- abortion debate on June 23rd, 2022? I guess, given the leaked draft, maybe we should say April 1st, 2022. Yeah, or, or even just, I mean, prior to, um, prior to Mississippi asking the Supreme Court to not just uphold their 15-week law, but actually overturn Roe and Casey, because I, th- I think that was the first moment that some of us could count to five. Uh, because I mean, what had happened between when they first filed their cert petition, uh, which was asking the Supreme Court to review their 15-week law, right. and when cert was actually granted, was that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died, and then Justice Amy Coney Barrett had been confirmed as her successor. And so then all of a sudden, you know, people could say, look, even without the Chief Justice's vote, there's potentially, you know, plausibly five votes to overturn Roe and Casey. So I would say prior to all of that, um, from 1973 up until you know about a year ago, roughly uh, speaking. Um, very little could be done legally uh, to protect unborn human beings, and for that matter, to protect their mothers uh, from the violence of abortion. Um, the Supreme Court had consistently struck down laws uh, that sought to meaningfully prohibit abortion. I mean, the, the only laws that they ended up, um, up upholding were things like waiting periods, uh, things like um, partial birth abortion bans, the federal partial abortion ban was originally struck down a few years later it was upheld and what was interesting there is that it was upheld because it specified a technique that could be prohibited but not a time time span so if you use a different technique at the same age of gestation um, uh, in theory it would have been okay which really meant that we had abortion on demand um, throughout the entirety of pregnancy um, as a requirement of our constitution um, up until last friday right and now it was never actually a requirement of our constitution. That, that's the thing is that like that's what the Supreme Court was saying, right? They were saying that our constitution somehow the number is formed by emanations of the Fourteenth Amendment. You know, Roe said it was a privacy right. Uh, Casey then said uh, it was more of a liberty right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg then wanted to recast it, uh, and you know various kind of contemporary scholars want to say it's an equality right. 
right? And, and so you saw people agreed that you know the bottom line has to be there's a right to abortion, whether it's original justification, privacy, the Casey justification, liberty, what people thought would be a, the most plausible of those three, equality. Um, the, what the court did last uh, uh, Friday, and I guess you know depending on when this uh, is published, who, who knows which Friday ago it would have been, right. but. Um, uh, uh, what, what the court did that last Friday of June, I'll, I'll put it that way, is they said, look, we got this entirely wrong. Um, there's nothing in the Constitution that protects a right to choose um, abortion. And look, some conservatives, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm one of them, uh, think that they didn't go as far as they should or that they could. I mean, and I think the reality here is that Alito just doesn't have five votes on the court. Um, but what Texas originally argued in um, uh, uh, Roe v. Wade, and Texas was the state that had an abortion regulation at stake in Roe, uh, they said, look, properly understood, the 14th Amendment protects unborn human persons from lethal violence because the 14th Amendment says no state shall deny the equal protection of the laws or the due process of the laws to any person. And by person, uh, the ratifiers, the framers, the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment uh, did not mean Peter Singer style higher consciousness persons. They meant flesh and blood human beings. A person was interchangeable for humans. And that clause of the 14th Amendment, that no person can be denied equal protection of the laws or due process of the law, is not qualified. There are other parts of the 14th Amendment where it says no person born or um, naturalized, right, when they're starting to talk about rights of citizenship. But they weren't talking, so, you know, they, they clearly know how to limit um, protections to persons who are born, and then they know how to use the term in a broader context. Um, so anyway, I mean, that's all to say that um, uh, up until about a year ago, uh, a lot of legal protections were um, difficult in terms of providing anything more than kind of encouragements to choose life. There were no illegal prohibitions um, on abortion. And now uh, I think the most recent count is something like 13 states have had laws that have sprung into effect, another 10 to 12 states they're just waiting for um, uh, either a 30-day waiting period or for the attorney general to ratify the law to go into effect. Some states, uh, their state courts have tried to strike down those laws. But, you know, it's a very different um, legal landscape today. And as a result, there are babies um, who were scheduled to be aborted over the past week who are still living in their mother's womb and who, you know, several weeks from now will be born uh, and who a year from now will be, you know, sell it, will, will be you know, we'll be living uh, all because of this ruling. And so we shouldn't forget that, you know, there's a very um, concrete human uh, payoff of this ruling. And, and if we if we had more time, we could give some nuance to that, because there there are states with restrictions on abortion, even pre uh, pre Dobbs. I mean, I live in one of them uh, where uh, uh, I, I forget exactly the, the numbers. Some uh, I was listening to a, a, a speaker from a pregnancy center, a pregnancy resource center who mentioned that you know in in 2017 there were i don't remember the exact numbers two or three abortions in missouri and in 2019 because of political action by the state basically there were something like seven or eight uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean so states had already been moving sort of in a dobbs direction uh, uh and you have states like illinois or north uh, or new york that are moving in the other direction and, and continuing to make it legal. Uh, Dobbs basically just reinforces laws that are already in effect on the ground. But I mean, so we would, I, I would need to look at what Missouri's exact law was, but I mean, as a constitutional matter, they couldn't place a direct um, 
age, you know, so, so more, more or less what, what Casey had held was that, you know, prior to viability, there can be no substantial burden to abortion. Right. And an outright ban would constitute a substantial burden on abortion. And so what you could do is you could have various like health and safety regulations. And unfortunately, many abortion clinics refuse to actually operate at the same standards of like healthcare expertise, cleanliness, uh, qualifications. I mean, you look at something like Kermit Gosnell. And so th that was what was at stake um, in the t uh, Texas case, if I remember correctly, um, Whole Women's Health. Yeah. It was about, you know, whether or not you could require ambulatory um, uh, care. And unfortunately, the court struck down that law. I mean, that, that was, um, you know, just saying that abortion clinics have to be held to the same exact health standards as other um, ambulatory uh, right. uh, clinics. Uh, well, we're a uh... Uh, I'd love to get into the text of Dobbs itself. It's it's an interesting case. Uh, I think really the most interesting parts of it are sort of the concurrences, which which are, right. uh, I mean the uh, the the main opinion is is in some ways nothing that we haven't heard uh, coming from from the uh, the conservative pro life side of things for the last fifty years. Uh, the concurrences get really interesting, uh, and and the dissent. I, I wish the dissent were better. <laughs> I wish it were. Uh, 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 more carefully reasoned, but uh, you know you're you're doing a dissent, I suppose. Uh, I think uh, we we should probably ask. And, and again, if you want to go back to any of the the, the text of Dobbs, happy to do that. Uh, where is the pro-life movement going to go from here? Uh, uh, what what is it going to look like uh, a year from now? Uh, Roe having been struck down, uh, and I I have some thoughts about stuff that I've seen online, but I, I you follow this way more closely than I do. Sure. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? What comes next? Yeah. I mean, so so I mean, to a certain extent, this is what um, Alexander DeSanctis and I do in our, in our new book is we try to, you know, um, we try to um, frame what would be kind of a, a long term, you know, guidebook, playbook, marching orders, because it's going to be a series of both ends. The pro-life movement is going to have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. It's going to have to be able to work at the states and at the federal level. Uh, it's going to have to work both to prohibit uh, the killing of babies in the womb and work to support mothers to bring their babies into the world and to support marriage, um, because I think the ultimate bedrock uh, protection of both the mother and the baby is to only have uh, sexual relations inside of a committed relationship. And that committed relationship has a name, it's called marriage. And when you get the man and the woman committed to each other, um, that's the greatest likelihood that then they will then be committed to that child. Uh, and so, you know, I think part of this long long term is going to be responding to the sexual revolution. Um, it's going to require uh, both cultural efforts and legal efforts, um, meaning in those states that had laws that sprung into effect where abortion is no longer legally allowed, some of those mothers will cross state lines and receive an abortion out of state. Some of those mothers will now uh, bring their children to the world. Are we prepared to provide them with the assistance they need? To bring that child into the world and, and that's going to require both pregnancy resource centers and they're going to need increased funding increased staffing but also public policy um and so and then the last thing i'll say is that we're, we're also in a new era uh, of the pro-life movement in which um persuasion is more important now than ever uh, and so the reason that you know alexander and i wrote the book was that when we thought we could count to five and that roe was going to be overturned we said all right well what comes next what comes next is 50 debates at the state level, plus debates at the federal level, over what our abortion laws should be. Uh, and some of those are going to be in blue states where we're playing rearguard actions, trying to prevent the law from getting worse. 
Some of those are going to be in, you know, red states where we can have, you know, pretty robustly pro-life laws. Some are going to be purple states where we have to find, you know, the best compromise we can and where we can't allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good or, you know, the best we can achieve today. And so um, one of the things that means is, you know, all of us who want to be um, playing our role in the pro-life cause need to be prepared to um, talk about this issue, bear witness to the truth on this issue, help people who don't already agree with us come to agree with us. And, and I think that's very different than, you know, people who want to, quote, own the libs, people who want to, um, you know, do kind of like red meat and do like very aggressive, like social media uh, posturing. Uh, we're now in the convert uh, business, right? And, and not, you know, theological, religious conversion, although I'm in favor of that as well, but, you know, moral and political and legal conversion, because unfortunately, we do have a reality um, inside of the church of people who are personally pro-life, but they don't think it's the role of Christians to, quote, impose their morality on others or to impose their theology on others, or even Christians who are biblically orthodox on a variety of, you know, Trinitarian and Christological considerations who aren't orthodox when it comes to the sanctity of unborn human life. And so the persuasion is going to have to happen not just, you know, uh, with people who don't share all of our fundamental theological convictions, but also with people who do share some of our theological convictions, but don't see either how they might apply to law and public policy um, or how they just directly apply to the moral issue. Um, and so anyway, I mean, what comes next is like, you know, all of the above. Um, there's going to be a lot of work for everyone, which also means really no one can sit on the sidelines. Right? You know, all of us, whatever our vocations are, are going to have a role to play. Do you think that the uh, the pro-life movement what you've just outlined is a, a very uh, nuanced, complicated, and subtle uh, approach. Uh, for the last 50 years, it's been Roe is bad, infants are dying. That is not nuanced and not subtle. Uh, do you think the pro-life movement is going to be able to hold together without that sort of simple, unifying message that, that we had up until last week, or two weeks ago, I guess, when this posts? Yes and no um, is, is, is the answer. So it's a very, you know, on the one hand this, and the other hand sure. that. An academic asks an academic a question, and that's what they get. But um, you know, here's my thinking of that. On the one hand, it's not going to be as um, politically unified or as like objective unified because there's no longer one single um, near-term objective, right? Because like right. the 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 near-term objective that all pro-lifers could agree on and that we had to get to was the first step is overturning Roe, so yeah. then we can do all the other things. Now, the long-term goal that we do have agreement on is that we want to protect every unborn baby in every um, jurisdiction of the United States, right? In all 50 states, in all of the U.S. territories, et cetera, et cetera. How do we get there is now going to be a question because, you know, the, the, the first step was overturning Roe. We can agree on that. Now there's going to be disagreement. Um, uh, and, and my hope and, you know, the reason we wrote the book we, we, the way we did, which is, you know, very you know, civil, charitable – my hope is that we can, you know, have these prudential disagreements with a spirit of charity that we can say, look, let a thousand flowers bloom. People are going to have different calculations about what the best path forward is. And we need to allow some people to say, you know, in this state, the best we can do is 15 weeks. That's not the long term goal. I mean, 15 weeks is what you get in Germany and France. Right. And so it would be shocking if we want to say that, you know, the best we can do in the United States is what, you know, um, uh, Western European countries are doing. Um, but it may be that today 
given political realities, 15, a 15-week bill is the best we can do, and it's better than where we currently are. Right? If we currently don't have any law or we only have a 20-week law, right? You know, moving five weeks closer to conception is a step in the right direction. But then we should immediately be working to move towards a heartbeat bill, which would be around mm-hmm. six weeks, move towards con- – um, and, and there I just think that um, uh, you're, you're correct to say there's not going to be as much unanimity. Uh, and, and my hope is that the disagreements will be conducted charitably and in good faith. Uh, what we know about any political movement is that sometimes there are you know, radicals um, who you know, think we're not moving quickly enough. And sometimes there are bad faith actors, right? And that's you know, just true you know, in every political movement. Um, but I think for the most part, my experience with the pro-life movement, um, and, and I've been involved um, in a co- professional capacity for, I guess, 18 years now, um, uh, my experience is that, by and large, almost everyone I know working in a professional capacity is uh, working in good faith and with charity, um, and and they seek nuance, right? e- even if not everyone has like a PhD and you know can speak blah, blah, blah. Uh, um, I don't know the people trying to do it in a bombastic way or a, a way that would, you know, just elevate their platform at sacrifice of the actual cause. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that at least amongst pro-life leadership, amongst um, pro-life um, uh, activists, um, that we will stand together on this. Uh, and where do you see? So we, we asked, where does the where does the pro-life movement go? Where do you see the pro-choice movement going from here? Should we expect to see? The sort of mass organization we've seen on the pro-life side will there be a march for choice on uh, you know june 24th every year from from here on out what what is that side of things going to look like yeah i mean so i i have two thoughts there as well i mean one is that i do think we're going to continue seeing um lots of radical uh, positions coming from kind of uh, what i'll refer to as a pro-abortion left because i mean I, and what i mean by radical and pro-abortion is the people attacking the pregnancy resource centers right the people uh, throwing firebombs, um, uh, uh, vandalizing, graffitiing uh, pregnancy resource centers. Some of that's going to continue. Um, I think we've already seen President Biden call to abolish the filibuster, but just on the issue of abortion so that the Democrats can enact a piece of legislation that would have codified um, abortion on demand up through um, uh, the moment of birth. Um, I think we're going to see some states um, succeed in passing legislation like that. Um, So I think you could see states like California, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts um, pass laws that, you know, more or less look like Roe. Some states already have state-based laws that look like that. Um, But then I think there's another thing um, that will happen. I think it's going to recreate space within the Democratic Party um, for compromise positions on life, meaning that there are some Democrats who are going to want to say, I live in a purple state and I can't get elected if you guys make me endorse an abortion law that exists in China and North Korea. I need to endorse the abortion laws of Germany and France, right? 15 week, 12 week uh, abortion laws. And so I think there, there's going to be a, a splintering within the Democratic Party of um, Democrats who know that it's actually politically infeasible uh, for them to embrace what the national uh, party is suggesting because the national party is so heavily influenced by like the deepest of blue states that are, you know, California, New York, Massachusetts sends dozens of members of the House. But if you're, you know, running in a smaller state and it's a historically it's a swing state, it's more purple, it's going to be hard. Right. And so, so I think this is something that, that, that could be a sign of hope. 
And then ultimately, I, I think um, something that all of us should be uh, viewing as, as as a healthy direction for our polity would be one in which neither of our major political parties is committed to a fundamental injustice. Uh, pro-life Democrats once were a mainstay of the party. I mean, pro-life Catholic Democrats in, in particular, we quote Anthony, or not Anthony Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, uh, in our book, a letter he sent to his constituents in 1971 saying why he was pro-life, uh, why the science and the philosophy and the ethics was on the side of life and why therefore he couldn't support abortion. But then we saw one by one by one um, the evolution of, well, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I can't impose my views on others. And then eventually, I mean, people just stopped even mouthing the I'm personally opposed to abortion, right? They're, they're shouting their abortion, celebrating right. abortion as a positive good. So I, I, I think hopefully we can, you know, um, we can correct that historic injustice. It will be better for each and every one of us as voters if we had a meaningful political choice where one political party wasn't taking us for granted and the other political party wasn't committed to a fundamental human rights violation. Do you, do you um, think uh, for, for all of those same reasons, you know, purple states and so on, we'll, we'll start seeing a return of pro-choice Republicans who were also around. I mean, I remember like Al Simpson from Wyoming was loudly uh, a pro-choice Republican. Are, are we going to see that come back as well? Uh, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> and, and in two senses here, the one is that there already are um, pro-choice Republicans. Some of them are, you know, out in the open about it. So like Sue sure. Collins and, 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 and Murkowski, some of them mouth pro-life platitudes to get elected. And then they work behind the scenes to ensure that nothing meaningfully ever gets accomplished on pro-life stuff. I think one of the things that the overturning of Roe and Casey is going to do is force elected officials to put up or shut up. No longer can you as someone running for office say, you know, I support the overturning of Roe and Casey. And then when you get elected, you do nothing. Now that Roe and Casey are gone, when you get elected, whether it's to a state house or to the federal government, the question then becomes, all right, well, what piece of legislation do you sponsor? What piece of legislation are you a co-sponsor of? What piece of legislations do you vote for? Uh, I actually think it's going to be hard for um, uh, Republicans to say um, um, that they're pro-choice. Uh, I think what we're going to end up seeing is debate over what actually is the most um, pro-life bill that is feasible given electoral realities. Right? And then I think what we're going to see is some people um, saying, well, look, look, I just think that in my state, 15 weeks is the best we can do. And they're using that as cover for not really being meaningfully pro-life, when in reality, like, they could have gotten done a heartbeat bill. right? And so, so I think it's not going to be so much that you know uh, Republicans come out explicitly and saying they're pro-choice, so much as Republicans who refuse to be bold and then use the cover of, you know, a political compromise is necessary, when in reality, um, uh, we could have gotten a much better pro-life law had they been willing to actually act um, on real conviction. Right. Uh, well, I, it's always difficult to uh, to predict the uh, the future. I, I was just uh, <laughs> noticing something that I'd, I'd said on Facebook about a year ago about how I didn't I didn't think Dobbs would overturn Roe because I didn't think Roe would be overturned. Uh, I thought they would just say this law is fine, but we're not overturning Roe. I thought it would be uh, Roberts, the John Roberts the majority, approach, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what uh, what do you think the next court action will be? Uh, uh, is it going to be? Some far red state that says, yeah, mothers are, who have abortions are going to prison. Uh, is it going to be removing, uh, again, some far red state that removes rape and incest exceptions? Is it going to be some blue state that says, you know, right up to the minute of birth? Like, what, what's next in the court system? 
Um, I think all of those things. Um, I think that, uh, and, and not necessarily specifically like the two kind of red state examples you gave, but I do sure. think um, law firms on the left uh, will be suing state laws that they think, um, uh, state laws that protect unborn babies that they think they will have a legal claim to say they do so in a way that infringes on some other constitutional right. Um, and so, you know, maybe they'll say that the medical exception isn't broad enough. And so even if there isn't a general liberty interest or equality interest to choose abortion for elective reasons, there is a liberty or equality interest for when uh, the life or the health of the mother. And then the question is going to be, well, how, how broad or narrow do we interpret life and health of the mother? Um, so I do think there will be cases like that. Um, I also think that uh, pro-lifers will be advancing the 14th Amendment personhood argument. Um, and I don't, don't think right now there are five votes. I mean, um, Justice Kavanaugh made it very clear in his concurrence that he's not there. I, I think Roberts makes it clear because, you know, he didn't even concur. He concurred in the judgment, right? And so I think that um, signals that, you know, they're not there yet, which means I think for vetting purposes, um, there's going to be a divide within the conservative legal movement of, well, what do we now use as a proxy for thinking about what type of judge do we want? Do we, you know, do we want justices in the mold of, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, or in the mold of the Chief Justice and of Kavanaugh, or in the mold of Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and, you know, so I think we're going to see um, uh, intramural debates on the right over what type of justice do we want, do we need. Um, and then I do think eventually the court cases will be over uh, 14th Amendment personhood. Um, yeah. I, I do think it's interesting if, if Roberts, and this is a little off track, and I know you have to go, so maybe we'll end with this, but uh, uh, if Roberts' concurrence had been the majority, do you think he would have pulled maybe Kagan or Breyer into the majority as well? Just as institutionally, there's a part of that that really appeals to me. Uh, what, I think what, possibly. What do you think? I mean, I think, I'll put it this way. Had Roberts had, let's say, Kavanaugh and Barrett, and so he has, two, he has three conservative votes, and then the other three, it's Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, right? Uh, and so there you would just have, you know, um, uh, you could have had three dissents and then, you know, two different three-person uh, uh, opinions, which would have the end result of upholding the Mississippi law but not overturning um, right. Rowan Casey. It would have there been is, Casey but the other direction, right? Right. And there's a possibility that I could see that he could have gotten someone like Kagan and possibly Breyer. So then he would have had a five-justice majority, Yep. Um, not just a plurality, which is what we had in Casey. Um, and then that, you know, that might have had more staying power because then it would have been viewed as like a bipartisan compromise. And so I, I'm just very thankful that that did not happen. I am too, but I, I'm with Robertson being concerned for the court. Uh, it's an institution that matters. So yeah, I'm, I'm pro-life. It I'm is, fine with overturning Roe, but... It is. I mean, I'm going to have to jump off in a second, but, but, but I would say it is, but the best way that you... Um, can uh, maintain credibility for an institution is to admit when you got it wrong. Sure. Uh, I think you take an example of Plessy v. Ferguson, Brown v. Board of Education was the right thing to do. Uh, and, and to admit it on an issue like this as soon as you can. Uh, so I think the, in, the court's institutional credibility is, is better protected with it just ripping off the Band-Aid rather than keep doing it piecemeal. Right. Well, hey, thanks so much for taking time to uh, talk, and uh, I will uh, look forward to speaking to you more in the future. Yeah, thank you. 
Well, thank you listeners for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting christianhumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Podcast, or get in touch with us at cityofmanpodcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a walk in that ribbon of highway